Well, we are in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossae, a uh, small town in so many ways, in the Lycus Valley and uh, between uh, Phrygia, uh, not too far north of uh, Asia. Uh, A place that uh, doesn't seem to be particularly important, as though the apostle were to write a letter to the New River Valley. Uh, To people that uh, uh, grew up in general ignorance of the things of God and lived according to the worldview of the Greco-Roman age, the, uh, the gods and purposes and lifestyle of the Greco-Roman world. Well, here in this short letter, Paul uh, writes a beautiful epistle in order to reset their whole view of life. And so it is that we are studying this under the heading of worldview, and we'll be taking up another particular question today, where did I come from? Where did I come from? We're going to get this from uh, verses 15 through 17, although I'd like to read just a little bit before that and a little bit after that for context. So I'd like to read to you from from Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. Uh, Speaking of the Father, we read, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the part for today, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him... All the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this word, which by your Holy Spirit you have inspired to teach us, to reprove, correct us, to instruct us in righteousness, that we might be a people thoroughly equipped for every good work, So now, our Father, we pray that as we also have grown up in this world and in this age, believing its lies and being influenced by its purposes and values, oh, Father, may you reset our minds. May they be set on things above where Christ is, and may the truth of his redemption be first and foremost in our hearts and minds that our Creator is our Redeemer. We pray. Amen. So who's preaching the sermon today? (laughs) We have a guest preacher. No. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the passage before us is perhaps Paul's most profound and beautiful description of our Lord Jesus. In the passage that we'll be looking at specifically in verses 15 through 17, he describes how Christ 
is preeminent over all this natural creation. Uh, then we'll see next week in 18 through 20 how Christ is preeminent over his spiritual creation, the church. And the Greek scholars praise his beauty and form, but I won't get into all that. My point is simply that Paul is not just teaching here. He is worshiping, and he's inviting us to do the same. He begins our passage by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. During the Second World War, Tom Torrance, later the celebrated Edinburgh theologian, was serving as chaplain in the British Army, and one day in the heat of battle, he came across a wounded and dying soldier. And he writes, as I knelt down and bent over him, he asked, Padre, is God really like Jesus? I assured him that he was. The only God that there is. The God that has come to us in Jesus. Shown his face to us. And poured out his love to us as our Savior. As I prayed and commended him to the Lord Jesus, he passed away. trust he did so happily for our redeemer is the image of the invisible god emmanuel god with us paul describes him as also the firstborn over all creation you might have the firstborn of all creation which is also a legitimate translation but you understand firstborn has two meanings in the scripture it can refer to the order of birth which we often use that way. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. But it does have a second meaning, as I explained earlier. It refers to rank. David was not Jesse's firstborn son in the biological sense. He had many older brothers. But as we just sang in Psalm 89, God had made a covenant with David that he would make him firstborn, make him firstborn, that is, supreme over the kings of the earth and establish his reign over all lands. He and his seed would be king of kings, if you like, and that is the second meaning that is here. The firstborn in the ancient world enjoyed rank and authority, and so my translation says that he is the firstborn over all creation. All authority in heaven and earth is his. Um, I should also mention that this important verse uh, was uh, important to the ancient Aryans and pressed into service by their contemporaries, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say if Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he must have had a beginning. There must be a time before he, and he was created, and therefore he can't be eternal. So please understand the ancient meaning of firstborn. Uh, it can mean a first according to birth, or it can be that David and his seed, the Messiah, are made firstborn over the kings and nations of the earth. The point here is that the whole world is in the hands of King Jesus. Very good news for you and me. He rules all things because, or for, by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things created through him and for him. Dear Colossians, he's saying, if you do not bow down before Christ as your maker, then I tell you, your Christ is too small. He made it all. He sustains it all. He's before all things, and in Him all things consist or hold together. Oh, Colossians, I want you to know just how dependent you are, in fact, moment by moment, on the all-sustaining power of Christ. If you don't see Him as the purpose of your existence and the center of all things, your Christ is far too small. 
You need to have the frontiers of your mind and heart expanded. Now, in J.I. Packer's lesser-known classic, Growing in Christ, he explains it this way. You have seen the sea, the sky, sun, moon, and stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You have observed the landscape, the vegetation, the animals, the insects, and all the things big and little together. You have marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in each other. Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who's behind it all. As if to say, now that you've enjoyed all these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will introduce you to the composer. Paul's vision is expansive in these verses. The word all occurs eight times in six verses. He created everything. He upholds everything. He's reconciling everything to himself and so forth. He's the meaning of human life, the origin, the end, the purpose, the goal. The very heart of your faith, Christian, is this movement here from Christ, who is the glory of God made visible, earth's creator and ruler and sustainer to the statements we'll consider next time where we read of his resurrection and the blood of his cross. Here is the good news, the story of the human race from beginning to end. The creator has become our redeemer. And once you know this, you will know everything that there needs to know, you need to know about life, where it came from, to whom it belongs, what's gone wrong, how it can be put right and where it's all going. So, my point here is that in the identification of Jesus Christ before us, we have not just a few facts about Jesus, we have a comprehensive worldview or philosophy of light. And that's why Paul is writing these things. He's not just giving them some tidbits of religious knowledge. He's giving them a Christ-centered worldview. Do you see that? Well... For the sake of time, I should have warned you, I just launched right into the explanation of the passage, line by line. Having explained all of its parts, my point to you is that this opens up for the Colossians and for us a whole new way of seeing where we are from, who we are, and therefore what we are to do and how we are to live, where we are going. I'm going to consider with you a Christ centered worldview first, and then the modern challenge second. The Christ-centered worldview and the modern challenge, having already explained the passage now to you. These Colossians grew up with a very, very different understanding of the world, that it was very, in their view, chaotic, frightening, unsettled, As for the world's origin, they were taught that many gods were involved in creating the world. And as for who's in charge of it now, uh, there were gods all over the place. There was a god that ruled the sea, Poseidon. Another ruled the vegetation, Demeter. Another ruled the animals, Artemis. Another ruled the domestic life, Hestia. Another ruled magic and spirits, Hecate, and so forth. On and on. Things in the world were crazy because the gods were crazy. We're always fighting with each other and betraying each other and getting jealous of each other. 
and doing terrible things. That's why life was so chaotic and drama-filled and disconnected. It was quite a soap opera. You never quite knew when the gods were going to fly off the handle and maybe even take it out on you. You were always at their mercy. You had to remember to appease them. Colossae, in the province of Phrygia, um, was a place where Phrygian magic had become world famous. That is to say, if you wanted things done in your life or in the world, you would visit what we would call today the witch doctor. That insanity was life for them growing up. Not so different than many parts of the world today. In fact, the longer that we go in America without the dominance of the Christian faith, the crazier people's beliefs are becoming here. So I say this is the importance of the letter and especially this section of it. What he's saying to them is, Colossians, your life that you think is so crazy that doesn't make any sense, it doesn't, unless you understand that Christ is at the center as he truly is. And when he is, you will understand that these powers and principalities and all things in heaven and earth and so forth, all of these were made by him and for him. And he is before all things. He upholds all things. He rules all things. He is God over all, you see. What a very different view of the world. And when you understand how that frees you from anxiety, superstition, the feeling of meaninglessness and hopelessness and the chaos of life that must otherwise dominate in the human heart. One writer put it this way, for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also their creator, ruler, and goal of all. Is that your Christ? He made it. He sustains it. He governs all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, principalities, all things through him and for him. He made the world. He rules it in righteousness. He's the God you can hope in, trust in, and rejoice in. He's got the whole world in his hands. And as the great Dutch preacher Abraham Kuyper said it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, the sovereign of all, doesn't cry, mine. It's all his. Now, I, I know that many of you grew up being taught a very different view of the world. And, um, in fact, maybe you still believe some of those insane things which we are taught about life and its origin, and I'll speak about that in a minute. But if, if you're not a Christian, what is your worldview? Are we actually from nothing, going nowhere with no purpose, other than what might please us for a fleeting moment? This truth that Paul preaches invests your life and this world with wonderful meaning, and it assures you that God cares. He's not put this love and longing in your heart for nothing. He's not given you this moral judgment in your conscience to mock you, but to provide you with an understanding of himself, that we are not just this blue speck. Sagan said we're not alone in an obscure corner of a universe soon to die in the expansion of this galaxy. No, we, we do not accidentally have this power of speech and song of laughter and love. We have all these things because we have been created the lovingly in the image 
of the one who made us in order that you might know him and find real and true and everlasting life in him. And what a revolution it is when you know the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. That is what I'm offering you today. Can we get along in life without this? Can we get along just as well without knowing that we were made by him and for him? What difference does it make that we have such a creator? I asked that question to AI this week. And, I, uh, and here's the answer I got. Belief in a creator God can make a profound difference in how one views life in several key ways. I quote, purpose. Life is seen as having a designed intent and higher meaning than a random occurrence. There is ultimate purpose for existence. Second, value. Human life is sacred, valued immeasurably by a loving creator. People have inestimable worth and dignity. Third, morality. Objective moral truths exist, grounded in the righteous character and design of the creator. Morality is not just a relativistic opinion. Fourth, stewardship. Life and resources and gifts from the creator are to be used responsibly, not exploited excessively. People are accountable, stewards. Fifth, relationships. All humans share an identity as creatures made in the image of God. This brings innate value to all and motivates love. Sixth, hope. Suffering and death are seen as temporary with the promise of eternal life. There is hope beyond the grave. Seventh, guidance. The Creator gives guidance and principles for life through spiritual means like conscience, scripture, the church, etc. Seven, destiny. History is linear versus cyclic, moving toward a purpose, an end, and goal. There's meaning amidst the chaos. In short, it says, a belief in the Creator gives life coherence, meaning, moral bearings, hope, and purpose. For a theist, a creator profoundly changes everything about the human condition, end quote. You'll put me out of business. Going to have a big screen up here soon. Just going to have AI telling you because it's better than I could do in a short time anyway. Um, I, I read this to you in summary because, dear friends, all of this sounds very philosophical. This is what's at stake. This is what is yours if you are his. Can we have all those things with no grounding? That's a big experiment we are running right now in the West. Paul wants them to understand that things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. And as C.S. Lewis put it, Men wanted some corner in the universe where they could say to God, this is our business, not yours, but there is no such corner. It's all His. This is point one, the Christ-centered worldview. Not just this, that, and the other doctrine. This is the way of understanding who you are, where you're from, what you are for, where you are going, the one with whom you have to do. But now I want to finish by considering the modern challenge. Because as I've already suggested, 
value, morality, relationships, human value, and so forth, all these things flee without a grounding in a creator. The modern challenge. This is uh, not just my own opinion. Paul applies what we learned in this chapter in the next chapter, where he says in chapter 2, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So, you see, every, every age, every culture has its origin story, which Paul warns can rob you and cheat you. And you know what ours is, right? We call it the modern evolutionary synthesis or the neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. Um, it's fabulous at explaining things like the variation among various species of finches, which is where Darwin started. He looked at the birds, he came up with a theory, and it all explains it so well. And if, if the theory had stayed with finches, all would be well. But that observation, that deduction that he made became a worldview. Here's where I'm going. This became something that explained our origin and destiny, our life itself. And it turned out that when that theory became a worldview in the 20th century, it was very, very deadly. This has become the most intellectually sophisticated and sustained effort as well in the history of the world to suppress the truth about God. Now, I do want to say a word about the scientific part of this because it is, in its origin, a scientific theory. It's uh, not that Darwin was all wet about those finches or the development of variations among species. Uh, that was brilliant, a brilliant observation about the finches. He, he didn't know anything about DNA and its vast complexity, but what Darwin proposed on the large scale then is that maybe everything works this way, that life, uh, the cell, and all its equipment, maybe, maybe the, the, it somehow emerged. He didn't know about DNA. He thought it was just a piece of protoplasm. But he said, you know, from such a humble beginning, and bit by bit, the most exquisitely complicated biological creatures and systems emerged by chance variation and natural selection. And that these great features that we see today in uh, living things emerged, well, again and again through this means. Well, what do I mean again and again? Well, for example, scientists now today tell us that these complex camera eyes that we have, which uh, Darwin did know about and, and, and mentioned is a, uh, a difficulty, that these uh, eyes that we have evolved, the scientists tell us, not just once, not just twice, many, many times. It's like they, they, they just happen to spring up uh, again and not in any way a religious publication. So this way. Here's looking at you, Squid. You look into the eye of an octopus and you will find yourself staring back at an eye not so different from your own. 
Yet we are about as closely related to an octopus as we are to clams. The octopus evolved its complex camera eye independently of vertebrates like us. Biologists estimate the eye has evolved independently more than 50 times. The point is, when you don't believe in God, it's not that you'll believe nothing, it's that you'll believe anything. Uh, I'm not going to say much more about the scientific point of view. I'll let Darwin's theory explain finches. Let it remain. My point today is that then a scientific origin theory was applied to everything, and so it then became a worldview, a deceitful and deadly worldview from which we continue to suffer today. What does this origin story change about the meaning of life? That's the question I want you to think about. What, what, is it, what does it matter if this is what we're, in fact, created by? Except that maybe we should be praying our Father which art up in a tree. Spurgeon's joke. All right. So what does it matter if this is our origin story? Well, let me allow famed Harvard paleontologist and agnostic Stephen Jay Gould to summarize. He says, we humans are because one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. He's an excellent scientist, and this is what he believes. And he's also surprisingly honest about where that view took us. He says... Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, when Darwin published his Origin of Species, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Yes, you see, if many, many scientists then embrace this and said, well, this is who we are, and this is how we advance, and this is our origin, and this is our destiny, well, they came to see the promotion of eugenic programs as practically a religious duty imposed by this worldview, by this theory of evolution. Stephen Jay Gould, again, not a believer of any kind, writes, Darwin's theories came to be openly set out in political and military textbooks as the full justification for war and highly organized schemes of national policy, which the doctrine of force then became the doctrine of right. This happened in many ways in the 20th century, but you probably already thought of one. Adolf Hitler adopted this worldview. In his manifesto, Mein Kampf, he spoke of Negroes as monstrosities, halfway between man and ape. They were flooding his country. He lamented Christian missionaries even going to Africa. In his chapter, Nation and Race, he wrote, the stronger must dominate the weaker. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. 
He did his best to exterminate European Jews, gypsies, blacks, and most Slavs. Now you say, how could the most advanced scientific society in the West succumb to that? You see, it was because they were the most advanced scientific society in the West that they had jumped on the bandwagon. This was not just their view of scientific origins. The view of scientific origins had become a worldview. And they pressed that worldview to a devastating consistency, as you know. Who would you expect to stand against them? The university? They were the ones promoting it, right? In 1940, it was a Time Magazine article in which Albert Einstein lamented how every structure in German society had capitulated, being captured by the new worldview, all except one. Uh, Let me give you just a little context before I quote. This is Time Magazine, 1940. The second Christmas of Hitler's war finds Lutheran pastor Martin Niemuller and upwards of 200,000 Christians, or some estimates run as high as 800,000, behind the barbed wire of the frozen Nazi concentration camps. Here men bear mute witness that that the Christ, whose birth the outside world celebrates unthinkingly at Christmas, can still inspire a living faith for which men and women now endure imprisonment, torture, and death as bravely as in centuries past. More than 80% of the prisoners in the concentration camps are not Jews, but Christians. The best tribute to the spirit of Germany's Christmas comes, though, from a Jew and an agnostic the world's most famous scientist, Albert Einstein, says he, quote, being a lover of freedom, when the Nazi revolution came, I looked to the universities to defend it, knowing that they had always boasted of their devotion to the cause of truth. But no, the universities were immediately silenced. Then I looked to the great editors of the newspapers whose flaming editorials in days gone by, had proclaimed their love of freedom, but they, like the universities, were silenced in a few short weeks. Only the church, said Einstein, stood squarely across the path of Hitler's campaign for suppressing truth. I never had any special interest in the church before, but now I feel the great affection and admiration for it, because the church alone has had the courage and persistence to stand for intellectual and moral freedom. I am forced to confess that what I once despised, I now praise unreservedly. I should add that uh, Einstein uh, later was uh, pressed whether that comment was exactly uh, made, and he did say it had been embellished in the article, but he, he, this was his statement that the church was the only one standing up to the Nazis. The article goes on. Of the fate of the German Christians, Dr. Henry Smith Leiper, the secretary of the World Council of Churches, says, this is one of the most subtle and terrible persecutions in all of history, that the blood of the martyrs is yet the seed of faith, that though the Nazis have jailed over 10,000 pastors, an unknown number have been beaten to death, but the churches stand far higher in German esteem today than they did in the easygoing 20s, 
The church congregations have grown remarkably. Sales of the Bible have shot up from 830,000 copies in 1933 to 1,225,000 copies in 1939, topping Mein Kampf by about 200,000. End quote. Ideas of consequences and bad ideas have victims. I'm teaching you some philosophy in this series of worldviews in order that you might understand what has been happening in our world and what is actually at stake and why Paul is writing such things to uh, some unknown people in a little river valley somewhere in Phrygia. Now you say, okay, those terrible Nazis, they were an easy target. Well, let's think about America, friends. Why don't you watch the uh, free movie on YouTube that James Farley introduced me to, Maafa 21, M-A-A-F-A, Maafa 21, Black Genocide in 21st Century America. You will see how the lethal worldview has been carried out in this country for over 100 years and how millions of Americans have suffered the most extreme ways as abortion clinics started intentionally by eugenicists in black neighborhoods. Much, much more than I could say about Margaret Sanger and the origin of Planned Parenthood and uh, the uh, effect of her worldview and philosophy, the devastating effect on the black community in our country. All this and much more than I can say has taken place in a country, a country that we began by declaring, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men were, were what? Created equal. And are endowed by whom? By their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see how important all those things are to having a creator. Now you knock over the first domino. This is what AI is telling you. You knock over the first domino, it's all going to go. Many other dominoes fall also. This uh, scientific theory has outgrown its britches uh, to become a worldview which is the most intellectually sophisticated, most influential worldview that our generation knows. A few years ago, an ad appeared on the side of London buses. Not the typical ad selling a product. It was rather a statement in large letters. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That campaign was headed by Richard Dawkins, the well-known professor of evolutionary biology at Oxford. You say, well, why is an evolutionary biologist paying for ads on London buses? Well, the two ideas you see are intertwined hand in hand, that the modern evolutionary worldview uh, and atheism are um, of the same root, uh, atheism of the dogmatic type or the functional type that just leaves God out of the equation. Dawkins is determined to make sure that people fully appreciate the implications of this theory for life. That there is no God and thus, he says, no, no judgment to come, no heaven and hell, no transcendent meaning to human life, that there is nothing more than to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Does that sound like our modern worldview? Does our origin matter? There's two choices that are put before you today, two consistent choices. I realize that all of us are somewhere in between. 
One is a Christ-centered worldview. That's what I covered earlier. To see all things through him and for him, that in him all things consist, that he is the one who gives life its complete and utter meaning. Or to listen to Dawkins, to listen to Gould, to listen to Sagan. Because if what they're saying is right, then you might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow you are a goner. The dust of the universe will soon forget you. When man loses sight of God, man begins to shrink. The longer he thinks of himself without reference to his creator, to an infinite personal God, the smaller he becomes, the less meaning he attaches to his life, the less he is able to appreciate the significance and worth of his own utterly remarkable nature. In the final analysis, life must become a tale told by an an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. How unspeakably false, how unspeakably sad. I tell you in conclusion, man was made for much, much higher things, wonderful things, joyful things, meaningful things. Men and women have been made in the likeness of God for fellowship with God and with each other, in love and dignity. They have been given powers like God's own, though much smaller in scale, precisely that we might have some grasp of God and his glory and appreciate the privilege of true, of true communion with him. And so it is that Paul goes on to speak about the new life that we have in Christ. This opens up then the vista for what the second half of this book has to teach us about how we are being renewed in the image and knowledge of him who created us. Christ himself the greatest gift ever given, the greatest sacrifice ever made, the greatest miracle ever performed. Why was it all done? For you and me. Here is the true dignity of man. God has forever dignified humanity by taking our nature to himself. No greater honor could be paid to our human race. No greater demonstration of the transcendent value of human life. No more unyielding argument for the immortality of human beings than that this figure, God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth, would once and forever take your nature to himself because he loved you and thus gave himself for you. What a different view of life. And you will never understand the world or your own life Or can you make any sense of them as you should until you know the one that made us has now done such great things for us in order to restore us to true glory? Well, let's pray together. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have blessed the dust of the earth with the great privilege of bearing your divine image. We do do not see that in ourselves or in others as we ought, we confess. We have often treated your image in others with contempt. We have often neglected this origin and destiny and purpose of life. We pray that you would forgive us and renew us. O creator, O maker of heaven and earth, we pray that you would renew us in knowledge and righteousness and true holiness after your image. 
that we might more and more know the reason that we breathe, that we have been given this life, that we have received such powers of song and of speech and joy and sorrow. We pray that you would bless our feeble efforts as those uh, stewards given dominion over the earth to be able to live our lives acceptably before you and to, to build a world that is not filled with chaos and vanity and despair, but more and more to, to build one full of life and light and love. We pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have so fallen short of such a calling and pray that you would bless us now and forever.